America's number one resource for special operations preparation. Here with you is host, Jason Sweet. Thanks for tuning in to SOCOM Athlete. This is your host, Jason Sweet, and I'm here with a good friend of mine that I went through Navy Halo School with and stayed in touch with all of these years. He's had an incredible career as a Navy SEAL, started at SEAL Team 2, transitioned over to SEAL Team 8, and now he's here with us live tonight to do some Q&A with you guys in the group training chats and our students. What's going on, Aaron? How you doing, my man? Living the dream. It's uh, pretty fantastic weather here in Virginia Beach, so... You obviously were in the Navy first. Where were you at before you decided to go into the Navy? Where were you at in life? What were you doing? Yeah, so uh, just a country boy growing up in Georgia. I liked shooting, and I won't, the only thing I ever wanted to be was a Navy SEAL sniper. So it uh, took a little while, but I made that happen. I did a uh, – it was a little bit different process joining the Navy back then and trying to get through the pipeline and stuff. So, uh, you know, had a couple of hiccups, and I got hurt. The first time I went to Bud's, I had to have a couple of surgeries. And then I uh, went back, and uh, uh, after graduation, uh, Bud's started SQT, and it's actually an uh, honor man in my class. Like you were saying, I was the class leader since I was already uh, prior service. We didn't have any officers uh, in my SQT class, so that was pretty cool. Uh, all enlisted. We are pretty hard dudes. So, Aaron, you're, uh, so you were prior service. What, what was your job in the Navy before – um, you crossed over and became a SEAL. Yeah, so the way it was set up when I joined uh, in March of uh, 2004, uh, basically you you kind of went in. The, they didn't have contracts like they do now. Everybody had to go to a specific A school. So I had to go to Gunner's Mate A school because uh, the rating didn't even exist yet. So then once uh, – so I was technically a Gunner's Mate at the very beginning, and then once I uh, – made it through SQT, then you got your trident, you actually became an SO. They created the uh, uh, SO means special operator. So when I, I got med retired uh, in June of last year, so um, after I hit IED in Iraq and took a little bit of uh, time to do the whole med retirement process. Um, yeah, but that answer your question? <laughs> Yeah, Aaron, uh, so before you joined the Navy, like, you know, you said you're from Georgia, like to shoot guns and whatnot. Like, what was your, your training background? I mean, you were a stud whenever I trained with you. I mean, you lifted heavy, you could run, you could swim. What was your background in athletics and training? Did you train all the time or, or got oh, yeah, given? Trained, like, what, what's I, up? I trained constantly. Uh, so, I mean, that, that whole thing, like, you can't ever look at somebody in any of these pipelines and be like, oh, yeah, this guy uh, – He's an Olympic swimmer. He'll make it. No, probably won't make it, actually. If you look at statistics, what 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 tends to make it is the most well-rounded individual that's willing to set aside and understand, hey, it's not it's not a you know, it's not what you know. It's how much effort you put in. It's you know, you, you could be the, the best at any one thing. And well, that's great. But you're not going to be a valuable asset to the command. You have to be 18 players. Simple as it is. Nobody makes it through buds on their own. I didn't make it through buds on my own. I made it through buds with my boat crew. So, and you know, your boat crew set up. So when you, when you start buds, um, you have your entire class, which usually starts, I mean, it, it, they're high numbers, 300 plus guys sometimes. So what graduated with my class from around 300 guys starting, I think we had uh, 15 or 16 original guys from my class graduate. Um, yeah. So it's uh 
it's no joke. Like you're, you're being tested every single day across the board. So, I mean, obviously the, there's a little bit of luck involved in staying healthy, you know, not stepping wrong and bending your knee 90 degrees the wrong way, but really, you know, they say this it's 100% mental. There's a lot of truth to that. I mean, it is, can you, can you get up every single day and go through that same grind four mile time run? You got a two mile ocean swim. You're doing the O course three times in a row. You're putting on your, your kit and your, you know, so you're doing the O course. There's part in hell week where you do the O course and you have to take your boat through all of the obstacles. It's, it's, uh, it's intense training, but like I said, it, it comes down to, to obviously everybody has to put in 100% of their effort, but it's a team effort. Everything in the military is a team effort, especially when it comes to operation, special operation force. Like, you know, you're, if you're on your own, like that's not going to work. Aaron, uh, you mentioned the thing that got you through buds and, and the way you get through buds is with your team and your boat crew. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some uh, individual evolutions where you can remember having to get through some sock with your boat crew in particular and where they helped you get through it? Maybe one bad. Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, buds was a uh, pretty interesting ride for me because uh, I was at day one of hell week. I was made the class leader and then I stayed the class leader all the way through the rest of buds and then all the way through SQT. Um, and then, honor man of my class which is uh kind of a big deal um, Aaron, sure. sorry to interrupt um you were class leader because you were prior service is that correct right and, it, it basically came down to experience and they they looked at me and they're like uh you're so uh, i went through buds i was an e5 already because uh you know i'd been in the navy for three years and was good at taking tests basically is all that came down to <laughs> uh so they were like hey you're next in line and i was like absolutely i got this so then the rest of the time, I got that a little bit of a special attention. There wasn't a single person in the class that ever got beat or ever got any special attention that I wasn't part of also. You now, Aaron, did you, did, you, did you like being a class leader? Did you feel that it kind of took your mind off the suck because you had to focus on your teammates or did it? Oh, absolutely. Like it, yeah. So one, one thing that I tell people is it's, it's not about you. It's about the guy next to you. So if every single person, every man in this community looks to his left and his right. And he's like, what can I do to make sure the man next to me is more comfortable to make sure the man next to me gets home. The man next to me makes it through today. And it's a, like a selflessness about it. If everybody does that, then everybody's in the same shitty situation and you just figure it out together. But if you're more concerned about yourself, then well, that's all you're ever going to be is just a selfish little person. That's not going to make it. So, Aaron, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it on behalf of our students. What is the balance of putting out 100% during buds versus maybe trying to conserve a little bit? Do you want to maybe be the first guy every single time if you're a stud and you have that type of capability? Or do you want to conserve and maybe hold back so that you can get through the entire evolution? How did you handle yourself and what do you think? About All right. That? So a lot of people have different thought processes on that. So I can just tell you my my personal experience and stuff. I, uh, I was not a really strong runner. I was an incredible swimmer and very like physically put out. I could do a ridiculous number of push-ups and pull-ups. So that was, that was never as hard, but you put running in everything. So then, you know, I mean, it, it just takes it out of you. So I pretty much just about every, every evolution that involved running was 100% effort for me. Like, 
if I didn't make it through that evolution, then I wasn't going to make it through butts. So it required 100%. There was no holding back. They're not looking for, you don't need to break yourself intentionally, but on the same aspect, you know, there's a lot of, uh, we'll call it like preventative maintenance that goes into your body and stuff in the evenings and in your downtime and stuff. You should be doing everything you can, eating healthy, not drinking, not staying out late and stuff. All that time will come later. If you want to, you want to go and party and stuff, buds ain't the time to really do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's most of the evolutions I would say require a hundred percent. And so everybody has their, their strengths and their weaknesses. So you have to capitalize on both your weaknesses and your strengths, because if you're the strongest swimmer in the class and there's a guy that, I mean, he could be the greatest operator that the world's ever seen, but if he's just barely low on his swim time, you're taking time out of your day in the free time and stuff like that. And you're being his swim buddy on that ocean swim to make sure that he gets it through. He's guiding, right. He's doing his technique, right. On his, his swim. And then who knows, he might be the best runner on the planet. There was more than one time on a four-mile timed run in boots. It's like, you know, 4.30 in the morning and the sun's not even up. You're running through the water on uh, high tide. And if I wouldn't have had somebody that was an incredible runner, like one of my best buddies, his name's Chad Wright. Chad, he runs, uh, I think he just finished a run in New Zealand right before this corona stuff, a 40-mile run in New Zealand. Like, he's an incredible 40 runner. 40 miles, huh? 40 Ooh. miles. And he's done a couple longer than that, but – uh he, there was more than one time where he was running alongside of me, just like telling me, Hey man, you better pick it up. Push you it know, through. Oh yeah. Keep, keep Pacing it out and stuff. And then, and then on top of it, every, all the instructors, they knew what he was doing and, and they understand it. They like that kind of teamwork, but they're still going to give him shit about it. So he would get beat afterwards after a run because, well, you know, Hey, you went from being first last time to being, you know, 30th in the run this time. Wet and sandy, dude. You're going to enjoy breakfast uh, covered in sand like a sugar cookie. So, Aaron, can you talk a little bit about the pays to be a winner mentality and how Buds kind of drives the attrition by rewarding guys that are finishing up at the front and smoking guys that are kind of finishing behind? How exactly does that work? Yeah, so really what it does come down to it, I mean, just in life in general, pays to be a winner. So that's more on the individual aspect in Buds. Like, you you have to put out, and that is on you. Uh, but but basically you got to look at it like, you know, if you're, if you're doing log PT and there's one guy on the log that is, that is not putting out his 100% effort, then he's screwing everybody else over. So hundred percent effort goes into it all the time. So pays to be a winner. I, uh, I used to get beat all the time and especially on like the conditioning runs and stuff because I'd be towards the back and they just stop the last third of the class everybody get wet and sandy and then they just start beating you while other guys get to finish the run get to take a little bit of a break well when it came down to the beating I was so good at that that I would be the one of the next guys off the beach because we would do buddy runs and I can pick a guy up and carry him on my shoulder at the same speed that I can just run on my own so you say bring, it, bring on the beatings man I don't have to be running exactly I'd love it you want to put me in cold water I'm so dumb, I don't even recognize that it's cold. <laughs> and, and for our listeners, guys, our students, you know, we call that segmenting, which is where you break stuff down into segments because you have that hope, right? Hope, we define hope is faith that there's going to be an end to suffering. So you know that eventually you're going to get a hot meal. Eventually you're going to get to bed. Eventually you're going to be done doing flutter kicks. They're going to roll you over and make you do push-ups. Eventually you're going to get the boats off your head. You're going to get in the water. However you want to look at it, you know, you can segment and you can break it down. And that's really how you make an impossible task seem possible. 
absolutely. So uh, we, uh, I mean, in buds and stuff, they even have little classes and things every once in a while, and they have guys talking to you and they explain like mental toughness and how you can develop more mental toughness and stuff. So I went through buds living my day three meals at a time or two meals at a time or whatever it is you're eating that day. And so, you know, there might be two evolutions in the morning that are super easy for me. So yeah, I'll, I'll do that evolution. That's fine. And then I know that the, you know, I better, I better be getting in the zone right, right in the mind when I go into that next evolution, you know, who knows what it was that might be hard. Nobody is good at everything. And then you might be super good at one thing and terrible at everything else, but you got to figure that out. Yeah, amen to that. Aaron, do you mind if we open it up um, for a little forum of questions from the students real quick regarding buds in particular? Yeah, no, that's fine. Okay, students, be thinking of your questions. We want you to actually come on and ask Aaron your questions. So for some of you guys that typed, uh, keep your question in mind, and we'll just take it uh, one by one. So if there's two of you at the same time, one of you just uh, give it up, and then the second person will be next. Go ahead. Can I go? Yeah, what's go up? Ahead, James. Go ahead, James. Um, is this the buds only or, or is this just in general questions? You can ask either. All right. Um, now that you're in the teams, what was something that you look I mean that you took a surprise that didn't expect you? I read that completely wrong, but hopefully you got the point. <laughs> All right, so you're say it one more time. Uh now that you're uh, in the teams, what was something that took you by surprise? that uh, finally made it into the teams. I guess I actually worded the sentence completely wrong. I'll ask you a different one. How does humor help um, help in the teams and in Buds? Everything in Buds is funny. Like, I mean, if you can't laugh at how shitty a situation is, then it's just going to – I mean, you're not going to make it through. Like, the, Buds was probably the most I ever laughed in my entire life. Like, you're just laying on the ground next to what is going to become, if it's not already, your – best friends you've ever met the the greatest men that i've ever known i was laying in the mud laying in the sand next to doing the most degrading ridiculous we'll call it workout but beatings on top of it and then everything you just make jokes and the instructors are like yelling at you to shut the fuck up and y'all just start singing some stupid ass like miley <laughs> cyrus song or something just to piss them off it's i mean everything is funny so humor, if you, if you don't, if you can't laugh at a situation, then it's gotten bad. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what are some characteristics of leadership that the instructors took? Yeah, so I mean, basically it's, uh, you know, no one to lead, no one to follow. If, if the person next to you, that's one thing that I loved in particular uh, about the SEAL teams is uh, it's more positional authority. I, I mean, I was a team lead as an E5 uh, recce team lead, like, I mean, you, you uh, nobody cares when you go into the meeting and stuff, you go into different briefs. Nobody cares if you're a, you know, an E1 or a 05, like you, you're briefing your portion of the mission. You're doing your job. You're making sure you know how to do your job and the guys next to you's job. And then you're paying attention to whatever everybody else has to say. So a lot of the, a lot of the super military aspect of like high and tight haircuts and all that kind of stuff. It's a, uh, it, I mean, it's still there. There's still structure. You're in the military, but you know, you're you're more than likely on a first name basis with your CO. I mean, like every 
you know, it's, we're all here to do the same mission. You have a mutual respect for everyone. And that's another thing that I, I really uh, take to heart. Just because you think you know the best way to do something, that dude that's brand new, I mean, might not be his place to say it, but if he has a better idea or he thinks he can do it better, especially if it involves some kind of life experience that he's had before, you better bring that up because, I mean, we're this, you know, this ain't the, uh, this ain't minor league ball. We're playing, we're playing pro ball here. Like, you got a way to do this better than what we got? By all means, it's your job to share it. So I think that, yeah. like, as a good leader, you should recognize, hey, man, you know, I mean, look at the president, the president of the United States. He's, uh, he's not the best, like, smartest man on the planet or knows economics better or anything like that. But what he does is he surrounds himself with other people that are the best at that to give him advice. So a leader needs to be able to humble himself and accept any advice and things like that from, you know, and that's when you get into like, you break down the whole structure of the, uh, you know, a SEAL team in particular. You got, you got your commanding officer and then your ops officer, your ops master or your CMC and then your ops master chief. And then it breaks down into each troop. Well, the CMC is the enlisted guy and pretty much the CO, he's signing checks, man. He's, uh, he's getting us jobs. He's, He's the face of that SEAL team. He's the, the business card. But the operational planning and things like that comes all down to the enlisted man. So the senior enlisted advisor is what they call it, the SEA. The SEA, on the ground on an op, that dude, he's making the serious tactical calls, and then it trickles down from him. Now, sure, you got to be a, a free thinker, and, you know, you're, you're in your squad, or you just got your shooting buddy. So, yeah, it's your job to uh, make it to the next point. It's your job to make it to the next piece of cover or whatever it may be. But it's, uh, it's that enlisted uh, SCA that's making large tactical decisions on the battlefield. And uh, the commanding officer or the highest-ranking um, highest officers, basically, it's his head on the line. He's, he's the one that has to finalize those decisions. And it's all happening immediately. It's boom, 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 nonstop. So... I mean, he takes the advice of that enlisted guy that's, you know, he's maybe been in 10 years longer than him, enlisted and done, who knows, 15 combat deployments. He probably knows what he's talking about. But that doesn't mean that some E5 in the back that's on his first deployment, he sees something that everybody else doesn't see. You better call that out. Thank you. Uh, last one. Uh, what's your opinion on gray man versus standouts in bud? Say that again. I'm on mute now. What's your opinion on being a gray man versus standing out? Oh, like I know you so stood out. My my opinion on that is uh, when you have a face that looks like mine, people tend to want to punch it. So it was basically impossible <laughs> for me to be a gray man. So I did my damnedest to blend in with the crowd. But since I was the class leader, I was standing in front of the, the, the head shed all the time. So being a gray man wasn't an option for me. So I really don't have a lot of advice on that. I'll tell you what, though, I, I got a couple of buddies that were downright superstars and they're superstars in the teams too, man. So like you, uh, you, you create your own portfolio. So if you want to be the gray man and you want to get into the teams and be the gray man and just walk through life and nobody ever knowing anything, you know, never, never wanting to, to work with you and stuff. Cause they don't even know you exist. Yeah. Good luck on getting work. But if, you got the reputation of uh, the best goddamn sniper that the world's ever seen. And people are going to seek you out for augments. They're going to want you on ops. That's very well said, Aaron. And I'll, I'll touch on the gray man concept a little bit, because when I went through the PJ pipeline, my father, 
had been a pararescueman. So he called down in the pipeline and told the instructors that I was coming through and told them to make sure that I got it good just like he did when he went through. So there was no way that I was going to be a gray man. So I just wore it. And I realized that I was going to be highlighted all the time. So I owned it. And I tried to be that guy that stepped it up and motivated my team. Uh, is that a good thing? Maybe, um, but not necessarily in the long run because your instructors expect you to be that guy day in and day out. So if you have a tough day and maybe you're not finishing f at first in front of your runs or maybe you're not getting your team motivated or maybe you're not the first guy to show up to formation, your instructors are on you because they're used to seeing that. So if you're not going to be the gray man and you're going to kind of take the torch and try to be the point man or that morale guy on your team, then you better be ready to own it. As far as the gray man concept goes, I, I don't think it's necessarily good to be a gray man from a whole standpoint. It's good to stay out of the spotlight, though. So whatever term you want to use for that, don't sure. highlight yourself, right? And some, right? And something that you know, like I learned recently, um, is a guest at the basic reconnaissance prep course down in San Clemente with all the guys that want to go recon marine. Is there's this guy named Hilton, and Hilton. They had this exercise called the Boneyard, and they were smoking these dudes for about an hour in this parking lot with these pig eggs, so 35-pound sandbags that they had to make. They'd hold them in front of their, over their heads, make them do front squats, and then they'd make them take off and do this 400-meter sprint. And this student named Hilton was always finishing in front. And in that hour, they did three of those 400-meter sprints, and Hilton was always in front. But after the fourth one, I noticed that Hilton wasn't in front anymore. And he had a big lead on the first three. And on this fourth one, he was right in the middle. He shows up back into formation. They start doing their front squats. Hilton starts bear crawling out of formation and throwing up all over the place. So he went from being the top dog to all of a sudden throwing up all over the place and not even being able to participate in the evolution. So, again, that kind of comes down to conserving somewhat. But, again, you don't want to conserve to the point where you're not putting out but you want to conserve to the point where you're not highlighting yourself and going over and beyond what you need to do, right? So that's my take on gray man versus being in the spotlight. Sure. And uh, when, you, when you look at it like that, uh, any extra attention is negative attention. So you really don't want to be bringing stuff on. But if you're consistently motivating the guys around you, like they look at it like this. When you do a room inspection in butts, your part of the room could be the cleanest, perfect, folded everything and it's supposed to, it's meant to teach you attention to detail because like, if you can't, if you can't clean like the valve on your life vest the right way, then what are you going to do when shit actually really matters? You know, like you're, you're, let's say you're a hearse cast master. So you're sending guys down a fast rope. If you don't check everything right and somebody grabs onto that rope and falls to their death, that's on you because you didn't check a little nut at the top where it attaches to the helo. That's so as far as being being a gray man, you know, you don't want to be a loud mouth all the time running his mouth and, you know, causing. But if you're if you're doing the the right kind of motivating stuff and you're making it if if your friends succeed, it's because you help them to succeed. That's a good thing. Great questions, James. Hey, can I ask one okay, more, Jason? Next. Sorry. Hey, James, we'll come back to you. Let's go on to somebody else. And then James will come back to you to the end. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I got a question about kind of like that loudmouth thing when it comes to like the humor where like that and like the humor thing. So like if you're someone to try and make people laugh, like is that considered someone being a loudmouth or is loudmouth? Do you mean like talking back to the instructors? 
I don't think anybody's going to make it very far talking back to the instructors. Uh, no, and they, they, if there's one thing they love, it's a good joke. So most evolutions always start off with, you know, the instructors come up, they get called out, they explain what the evolution is, and they're like, okay, who's got a joke? Well, if you tell a shitty joke, it'll still kind of be funny. You might get beat a little bit extra on the side, but if you tell an awesome joke, you might just save the classroom beating. Just saying. And to caveat on that a little bit, there's kind of two hats that you put on as a candidate, as a student. There's the hat you put on when you're with your boys or you're with your, your other teammates. And then there, there's the hat that you put on when the instructors are around, right? So if you're that, uh, that morale guy and you're cracking jokes and you're trying to get your team rallied up, well, you're going to be away from the instructors quite a bit too. You're not always going to get probed by the instructors. There's going to be times where you can bring that comedy out and you can bring that side out away from the instructors, right? And they don't have to see that. So again, Ro, you can still be that kind of guy, but you just don't highlight yourself in front of the instructors. So long as you stay humble in the way you present yourself, it'll carry you a long ways in life. Amen. Great. Thank you. Amen. Next question. All right, this is kind of a two-headed question. Um, what was like the best or most rewarding part of BUDS? And on top of that, were there any times where you were really struggling or felt like you almost quit? I went into every single evolution, the entire thing. I never even thought about quitting, not a single time. And the, re the reason I did that uh, is just like some, we'll call it mental toughness techniques. I didn't view quitting as an option. So like it wasn't, it wasn't an option. I, like I had to do whatever I had to do or die trying it. I, I never once said, oh, I could make this pain stop by going and ringing a bell. That's just like it didn't exist in the realm. Like it didn't, not even a choice. So, but I'd say uh, most rewarding uh, at the very end of, uh, very end of all of the pipeline, uh, you get to, well, I'd say the most rewarding things I probably can't even talk about, but there's one thing at the end of Bud's, it's the knife ceremony where uh, the only people that are allowed to go in are Bud's graduates. So the only people in there are SEALs that are running the ceremony and the class that just graduated. It's, it's a pretty big deal. Um, yeah, sorry, I can't really elaborate more on that. I'll say this though, uh, it's worth it. And I'll elaborate a little bit on as far as like considering quitting, Eric. Um, you know, Eric, I cannot think of a single time where I considered quitting. Just like Aaron said, there was never any option to quit. This was the only thing that I had. It was the only objective that I had. I had nowhere else to go. So I had to do whatever it took. There really was no option to quit because there was nowhere else to go. And a lot of students, especially older students that have families or have jobs and things that they can fall back on, that can sometimes be a problem because it can be cancerous and something that kind of pops up in their head. Like, you know what? Maybe this isn't worth it. I can go back to my old life. Well, I didn't have a life to go back to. So it was all pararescue. It was succeed or die, just like Aaron said. And I tell you what, it's impossible not to think about quitting when everyone around you is quitting. But whether you consider it or not, and you act on it, and you start considering it, that is the factor. Because they purposely will get you thinking about quitting. The instructors will offer you things to quit. They'll say, we're going to keep doing this. 
until somebody quits. We're going to keep punishing you guys until somebody quits, right? How could you not think about quitting, but whether or not you would actually do it or not, that is what it's all about. So yeah, Eric, I mean, at the end of the day, man, like don't even think about it. It's not even an option for you. Yeah, they got these uh, classic little sayings that they say at like the beginning instructors and stuff say at the beginning of uh, evolutions, like they'll say, oh, well, who wants to quit? They look around and nobody raises their hand. And then they say, some of you are liars and I'm gonna find out who. Just saying. So they encourage, the instructors encourage you to quit because if you wanna quit during this, what are you gonna do in a firefight? You gonna quit on your buddies in a firefight because something's hard? I mean, I've watched buddies fucking walk off the battlefield and you say, hey man, bleeding. <laughs> oh shit, I guess I am. You don't fucking quit. And if you want to quit, that's fine. There's, I'm sure you'll, you'll do great things in the military somewhere else. But uh, I don't think there's special operation forces for you. You want to quit? Especially, why would you give up your lifelong dream for something, some tiny bit of pleasure right then? So you're cold? Everybody's cold. You're tired? Everybody's tired. You're hungry? Fuck, I'm hungry right now. Doesn't mean I'm going to quit. What, are you going to quit in life, too? If you view quitting as not an option, then it's simply not an option. Well said, Aaron. Well said. Next question. I got a question. Yeah, go ahead, Sora. Yeah, uh, what are the main differences between the uh, West Coast team and the East Coast teams? Well, all of the guys on the West Coast have really great tans, and <laughs> all of the guys on the East Coast grow really good beards. <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. All right, so uh, odd number, even number, That's right? a pretty good beard, though, Aaron. Hey, thanks. You know, I actually beard, just man. trimmed it up. You know, you know what a man? Great, you know what a man uses to shave his beard? What? Nothing, because he's a fucking man. Aaron, I'm gonna ha I'm gonna have to change the uh, the podcast to explicit. You know, whenever you're like on the podcast, you have to put like if there's any explicit material. I'm gonna have to go ahead and change not, that. So. Not for the weak of heart. <laughs> not for the weak of heart. Not for the weak of heart. SoCom athlete bringing on Aaron. All right, next question. Can the same about not having failure as an option? Well, quitting as an option. Could the same be said for failure, too? Well. It what do you, Caitlin, would you mind elaborating on that a little bit more? Ask the question again, would you? Some people will say like, sure, I'm not going to quit. Everyone could say that they're not going to quit, but sometimes they don't take into account like other things that they have to come over mentally. Sure. They're mentally prepared, but what if they fail? They might not quit, but even if no matter how hard they try, sometimes people quit. I just had a buddy. He just got washed out. He tried with everything that he had, but he washed out because he failed. Failure is part of life. It's what you do after that that changes it. So the difference between quitting and failing, you're going to fail at things. as simple as it is. Everybody fails things. I failed runs. I, hell, I failed to swim one time because I was helping another guy, like in butts, right? You're going to fail something. It's not like you fail one thing and then you just get kicked out. You got to make up for it. You got to keep putting out. So, so if, if you never get back up and keep going after failure, then yeah, you quit. That's the difference between failing and quitting. And keep in mind, a lot of people are concerned with quitting. If you guys are listening out there, there's evaluation criteria. 
there's evaluation standards and there's also the chance of getting hurt. So there's multiple factors that are working against you. It's not just about quitting. So again, get quitting out of your vocabulary. It's not an option. If you even think that quitting is an option for you, don't even start this thing. Don't even start this thing. Next question, please. Hey, hey one thing one. Uh, looking forward to or not ahead, looking Zach. forward to is what is a good thing to do for like um, rashes and all that stuff, like the sand rubbing against you? Uh, what do you guys use for that? And then my second question is for second phase, um, what is a good way to like prepare for that? Like mentally, what's a good way to prepare for it um, academically? And all those areas because like first phase just seems like a suck fest but all the stories i hear about everybody's like you know like uh hydro hell week is actually worse than the first hell week so i was just wondering what you what you would recommend do once prepare haven't even made it to buds there's been two that have gone to buds prep out in great lakes online but they've lost out right so when it comes to like first phase stuff simple things like chafing from the sand and things like that um, I mean, as bad as it is to say, grow tougher skin. Like everybody's chafing. Can you deal with it? It's like that mind over matter thing. If you don't mind, it doesn't fucking matter. Right. And yeah, hydro hell week, uh, was terrible, but I mean, it was just another evolution. Everything's just another evolution. So, uh, I mean, to, to prepare yourself, you want to know the best way to prepare yourself for, uh, for like pool comp, grow gills. But if you can't grow gills, I guess you're just going to have to do it like everybody else did. You're going to have to fight through the suck, learn to hold your breath as long as you can go back. So compartmentalizing and stress management, is huge. You keep your cortisol levels down, which is a stress hormone that gets released all the time just happens, but in certain things it gets released more. Well, if, this is how I explain like the mental concept of compartmentalizing things. So I view everything that I got to do. And then I, I like, it's in a screen in front of me and I grab that piece. So pull comp super stressful, but I still got all these other things. Well, I'm going to move that up here and then I'm going to take the three things that I need to do to accomplish that and do those exactly the best to my ability to accomplish that goal. Same thing with the chafing and stuff. Okay. I realize that I'm chafing. I'm going to take that and put it way up in this corner where I don't even think about it. So what? I'm chafing. Am I still running? Am I still breathing oxygen? I got oxygen. Cool. That one's taken care of. See what I mean? Awesome. Thank you. Uh, but academics wise, there was nothing. That's not something to worry about then. I mean, it might be for you. Everybody's got their strong suits. I got a fucking IQ of 147. Like I thought that shit was a joke. You see what yeah, I'm saying? Did it bother anybody? Was there anybody that failed out of the dive portion academics or? Uh, you know how we say everything is a, a team effort? We might have, uh, some guys might have stuck around and helped people out a little bit on, uh, like, you know, dive medicine and stuff. So, like, you got to learn all this. I mean, it, you, you cannot be a dummy going in. But uh, all of that stuff, man, I could read something one time and I got it on lockdown. And so I would do study sessions and stuff with other guys that were, I mean, do you like, I know a couple of guys that are some of the hardest men I've ever met in my entire life. They might just be bad test takers when it comes down to sitting down and writing and stuff. Um, you know, they got sayings, things like you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. That doesn't mean the literal context of cheating on a test, trying to read the guy's 
but you're doing anything you can. So like instructors are pretty cool. If they know a guy's worth keeping around and he can't remember Boyle's law, then he'd be like, well, I guess I'll uh, just stand over here and talk about Boyle's law in the corner for a minute. The instructors want good guys to succeed. If they didn't and they wanted everybody out and they could make everybody out, then there'd never be anybody that's new. Never, you know, everybody would just retire and then that'd be the end of it. So, yeah, study hard, sure, if that's your thing. Some people don't have to study at all. And when it comes to dive physics, like Aaron was talking about, this can be a challenging subject for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, you're going to need help from some people. Everyone has a weakness. You're not going to be good at everything. That stud who's crushing everything in the water, who's crushing all scuba stuff, they may struggle at the dive physics portion, and they may struggle academically. I know personally I struggled with one-man comp, and that's in phase two of BUDS. For us, that's at Air Force Combat Dive School for us PJ students. And one-man competency is where the instructor will tie a series of their hose on your tanks and you get one breath and then they knock you over and they turn you all around the water and you have to untie that knot, get one breath and then they rip it out of your mouth and then surge you again. And you do that over the course of 10 minutes. And then, of course, and then eventually you have to recognize this knot that they call the whammy knot and it's a knot that you cannot untie. All right. So it's an unstrikable knot. You have to have the poise and the relaxation to recognize that remove your tanks, bring them over your head, and then start breathing off of your regulator that's tied there to your manifold. And it's a challenging exercise. And we have a couple students right now, or one student in particular that um, failed it at Bud's phase two, and he got set back, and he took care of business his second round, um, and he's in phase three now. Myself, I failed one-man competency twice. You get three hacks at it. You get two hacks on Friday, and then I had to wait all weekend for my third hack. And then you got to hack two-man competency on that Monday too. So all weekend to get your rehack on one man, but I took care of business on Monday and then took care of business with two man, but you don't want to be in that situation. The reason why I tell you guys that is because I would have never passed one man competency unless I had this guy named Barry Creel hook me up. He spent his entire weekend and it's probably because he's not 21 and I was in Panama city for combat dive school during spring break. So everybody was out partying over the weekend, but Barry Creel, stayed in with me over the weekend and we had this pair of practice tanks and these are twin 80s that we that we had made with pvc pipes and they had the manifold on them they had the regulator and the octopus and the depth gauge and barry sat there with me for two hours he was a really smart guy and somehow he had figured out how to tie some of these knots that the instructors were tying and he figured out how to tie the whammy knot and he put me through this series of one-man competency on dry land in the classroom over the weekend and I ended up passing one-man competency because of Barry helping me. So I wanted to share that story, A, because like Aaron said, there's going to be a lot of challenges, and not everyone's going to be good at everything. And then B, like Aaron said, you're going to have to rely on your teammates to get you through. And sometimes you may be that person that has to step it up and spend your weekend helping one of your teammates. And you're going to know when it's time to step it up. But you better be that teammate that steps it up because it will come back around to you whenever you need it. Next question. Um, I have a question regarding training for BUDS. So um, if you were to go to BUDS again, how would you train differently? Oh, I'd probably be a – yeah, I'd probably be a little smarter. I've learned a lot on, like, just 
preventative maintenance and nutrition. I mean, all of that, you know, the, the, you know, I went, I went through buds 15 years ago or something. And, uh, you know, things, things were different then now, like, I mean, you got so much like sports science stuff telling you, Hey, if you rub this muscle this way, you won't get shin splints and things like that. That, that a lot of that's actually fairly new stuff. Um, I would definitely try to take care of my body more. Um, I know like I do a lot of preventative maintenance stuff still now. And I got, I got titanium pins holding three places in my body together. I got Kevlar stitch three places in my body holding that shit together. I mean, you know, I, w- I would, I would try to take care of my body a little bit better than I, uh, than I did. If I went through buds right now though, uh, I mean, I've, I've had, I got a fake knee and stuff. I don't, I don't know if I'd make it through buds right now. Mentally I could make it, I'd, but I just don't know if I could keep up with y'all young bucks. <laughs> I'm sure you could do it, Aaron. You know, like you now, said, you ain't, you ain't trying. I'm sure you'd find a way, big guy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'd figure it out. Now if a firefight kicked off, I'd, I'd outrun you so fast. <laughs> All right, fellas. Next question. Um, yeah. I have um, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Let's go with Brian. Who, who was the, who was the other person? So we can uh, get you- I was Jason. I was too. And then Who's- Hunter as well. Okay. We'll go with Brian and then we'll go with Marcus and then we'll go with Hunter. Let's go. All right. So what was it like when uh, somebody you knew closely at Bud's, uh, when they dropped out, like, well, like, what was that feeling like for you? Um, just another fucking day, man. Doesn't mean we can't still be friends. Realistically, we'll probably lose contact. Like we'll go our separate ways and stuff, but, uh, you gotta look at it like this, man is, um, am I there for, for his life dream or am I there for mine? Maybe he decides, maybe he's got something going on. Like I, I knew a guy, man, and it, uh, we were in buds and his kid, um, his kid drowned and died and he, he quit. He was like, dude, I'm, I'm going home. And you know, I mean, he probably would have been a great operator and stuff. I hadn't, I hadn't talked to the guy in 15 years. I don't know. So, I mean, if you, if, you know, I'm not going to say he did the right thing or the wrong thing. You know, I didn't have, I don't have kids at all. So uh, I, I don't know. It's not something I can really uh, make a decision on. I, I don't think I would have quit, but you know, it sucks to see him go. But I mean, what do you do if, uh, what do you, what do you do if you're in the middle of a firefight and your best friend's head just gets blown off? Do you stop and sit there and cry about it? Or do you finish the fucking firefight? I mean, you still yeah, got a job to do. You still got something you got to take care of. So, Aaron, that's a great point. And I want to touch on that. I know you guys are here to listen to Aaron tonight, so I'll keep this quick on me. Um, as somebody who's been on multiple teams, whether it be a college baseball team, college football team, a PJ team, or whatever it is, I often wondered why, as I got older in life, there were some people that continued to talk to me and some people that didn't. And why there were some people that I, for some reason, didn't make an effort to continue to talk to and some people that I did. And what I realized is that common denominator is what usually bonds us as brothers or sisters or teammates. And when that common denominator is removed, it's pretty challenging to keep that relationship going. And when you know you have a real friendship is when the common denominator has been removed and the relationship still stands. And something like being in buds, right? Your common denominator is that you both want to be seals and that you're going on that mission together. And when somebody drops out or falls out of that mission, 
it's going to be pretty hard to keep in touch with that person, right? You'll show them respect and show them that you still care about them. But as far as like being friends down the road, I mean, it's just kind of unnatural. It's just not the, the evolutionary cycle of things. So you'll see people that are just better friends and they're just more committed people and just more loyal people. But generally it comes down to that common denominator. So great question. Let's move on to the next one. Um, so at a, what point during SQT or if it's post SQT, do you really get your team roles such as breacher, corpsman, communications, radio expert, and how far after do you get your Budweiser do you typically uh, deploy with your team? All right. So, uh, there's a couple little things. Um, so once you, once you get, uh, done with SQT, uh, depending on, you know, how you were ranked and stuff, a couple guys kind of get to pick what team they go to. Um, but there's like either 18 Delta or the Sockham course for uh, special operations medic, things like that. So they'll usually start with one of those immediately. So if you want to be a, if you want to be a medic in the SEAL teams, which I mean, you're still a SEAL, you know? Um, and I love those guys. I mean, those guys are, they're, they're, they're carrying a fucking huge med bag on top of everything else, you know, like uh, great dudes and they save lives. But, uh, you know, they'll send you to one of those courses immediately before you even check into your SEAL team. So you might be slotted to go to, uh, who knows, team eight. And then, you know, things might happen while you're in that course and you might end up at a different team or something. And then some, I mean, so uh, when I went to team eight, they were in Iraq and there was, a, I think, two slots open at sniper school. And they they pretty much let everybody try out, everybody that was, stateside and wanted to go to sniper school could try out and they took the highest score and that guy got to go to sniper school just so happens that uh i had the highest score so i was a brand new guy going through sniper school it was pretty awesome uh, i mean sure i got a i got a lot of shit for it but then you know i mean i've i put a uh i put a 50 cal round through a guy right at a mile away so you know i think uh i think i set myself up for success and really training hard and shooting but by the grace of God, uh, things aligned, and I got to go through sniper school when I did. But it worked out pretty perfectly. And uh, my partner in sniper school, I got a best friend out of the whole deal. So it, it really all depends. Now, uh, some things you don't have much of a say in. So I went to, to NSW comm school, which I hated it. But the reason I hated it is because that just meant that when everybody's radio started messing up, I had to take all this extra time and try to fix and work on their radio. So. It did set me up, though, because there were different times when they were like, hey, we need, you know, we need a sniper and we need a comms guy. We can only take four people. Oh, dude, you're you got both of those. You're coming and we need a medic. JTAC. Oh, this guy's a medic and this guy's a JTAC. And this JTAC has two other quals that are, you know, mission essential. So, you know, I mean, you build a portfolio and you have a lot of say in what happens. But, you know, some of the things you don't necessarily get to pick. A lot of them you have to fight for. and You got to out like pays to be a winner. If I wouldn't have outshot everybody, I wouldn't have gone to sniper school. Hell, I might not have ever gotten a chance to go to sniper school. And that was actually my dream, my lifelong dream. So, really all depends on uh, needs of the Navy plays a factor too, you know. Like if uh, – uh, and plus they're sending a lot of guys to language schools and things, uh, which helped this one guy out, this brand-new guy. Uh, his name was Nate. He, uh, he checked in, I think, on my third pump. And so he's a brand new guy. He wasn't supposed to even go on a deployment, but we were going uh, to a couple of places in, in Africa and he spoke Swahili. And uh, 
I like the guy. And I was like, hey, what do you say? Uh, what do you say I get you in my platoon? We went and talked to the CMC and he was like, you really speak Swahili? And he was like, yeah, they sent him to school for Swahili. So uh, little blonde hair, blue eyed, scrawny white boy. I mean, he wasn't really scrawny, but he was to me. <clears throat> Just kidding. Anyways, you got him out there in Africa talking to guys that nobody else can talk to. And now we're actually getting work done because this brand new guy that probably couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag as far as I'm concerned. But at the time, man, he, he was mission essential. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Next question. Hey, Aaron. Uh, question for you. In terms of transitioning from your class leader in Buds, class leader in SQT, and then graduating, becoming a new guy and going to sniper school, how were you treated by a lot of the vets on the teams? And if you have any a, a particular story where you kind of learned to, quote, unquote, become more humble, uh, if you could share that with the group, that'd be awesome. Oh, yeah. I've had quite a few humbling experiences. So new guys are going to get kind of treated shitty anyways. But it's not, a, it's not so much a punishment or even a rite, as, a rite of passage as it is kind of helping lubricate the gears of war. So imagine this. You got – you got guys that have been in 10, 15 years and they got to sit there and they got to plan missions and they're doing slides on computers and all that kind of shit. I think the new guy can take the fucking trash out. You know, that's more the kind of stuff the new guys. So those guys that had a bad time when they were a new guy and they got picked on, I was cool and fun and probably the single greatest wingman when it came to going out drinking. So I got away with a lot as a new guy. I didn't, Plus, I could also fight. So when it comes down to it, if you're, <laughs> you're a full-grown fucking man, I, I'm a fucking brawler. So I'm not going to let you hold me down and duct tape me up. We're both getting bloody. Now, when three or four of you do it, yeah, y'all are going to win. But it ain't going to be a fun task for you. So, you know, I didn't really get duct taped up a lot because, well, A, I took it a, I went above and beyond and took it upon myself to take the trash out before anybody was like, hey, why the fuck is the trash can full? You know? What Thank Aaron, you. What Aaron but, means by that, guy, you, it, it, put, get, putting your dues in when you're a new guy, you, you put your dues in, you stay humble. Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, uh, um, you know, everybody has to pay their dues and stuff and, you know, you're going to, you're, when it comes down to it and shit's messed up, then, you know, the new guy's probably getting the most of the blame, especially if it was his fault. The less you fuck up, the less you're going to get fucked with. The more, uh, we'll say, proactive you are in helping everybody out the easier it's going to be on everybody so they're probably not going to care so much that you know you're new and they care about more important things like hey dude let me teach you how to do this all right aaron correct me if i'm wrong but when you say proactive uh, my definition of proactive is is doing something without having to be told to do it when you know it's absolutely necessary. yeah okay, so, so you yeah i mean look look at it like this um you go into the platoon hut and you know, you're the first one there first thing in the morning. Turn all the goddamn computers on. Okay, that's easy. That takes – that's 10 minutes less out of everybody's life. Take the trash out, little things like that. And then you take it a step further and you start getting into, like, thinking outside the box. Like, you know, we got uh, – we're doing a duck drop next week. Uh, and, you know, maybe you and the a couple other new guys come in and you prep the boats the week before. So the only thing you got, really got to do, you test all the engines. You get make sure everything's running. So that Zodiac's good to go to put on the back of a C-130, push out and jump with it. Maybe you go get everybody together and uh, go in and build the rig for packing the chute on that, that boat and things like that. Nobody had to ask you. And then when it comes time that the, you know, the air ops guy looks at you and he's like, 
the fucking new guys build the boat yet? And you're like, yeah, we actually got two extra ones built. And we know that, you know, Charlie platoon is uh, going to need one next week if we don't end up using it. So their shit's already prepped and ready to go too. Then they're going to be like, that's awesome. What do y'all say? We take this meeting to uh, chick's oyster bar and have a beer as opposed to get your ass out there and now pick up all the cigarette butts in the parking lot. Oh yeah. Do it wet and Sandy. Got it. Thank you. So proactive goes a little bit further too. If you feel so like when you're talking, like, let's say you're clearing a ship. If you feel like you're uncomfortable because it doesn't seem right, you're probably in a position where you're uncomfortable for a reason. Spidey sense is kicking off. So be proactive looking around, you know, just because you're, you know, you got to go to the, I don't know, the bridge wing to take down the pilot house. That doesn't mean that somebody's not, oh, right there. So you're constantly looking for work in every aspect of being a team guy. Got it. And then how long did it take before you really felt, or I guess it sounded like you were more comfortable than most guys because you were proactive. But if you had any teammates that it took them, you know, a little bit longer to kind of become proactive and become aware like that's what they had to do where you felt comfortable as an operator versus being a new guy like you were respected as an quote-unquote an operator is that really after your first deployment or when did that kind of come for you well you know I've been a a little bit uh time in the fleet and I I I had a little bit of life experience and stuff so you know I wouldn't I wouldn't like the little shaky tawawa yeah no green guy yeah. yeah but on the same aspect man like I think it's different for everybody. You got to, uh, you know, some people get picked on in high school and some people are the cool kid. I was kind of the cool kid. So helped out, you know, but, uh, you were the cool kid, Aaron. Yeah, I was, I was the cool kid, man. Oh, I wish I was a cool kid, man. Hey, with, with locks like those, man, I don't see how everybody doesn't think, you know, just fall for you. (laughs) This guy, I love this guy. So he was, he was one of the bigger guys. I'm talking about sweet. He was one of the bigger guys in, uh, in jump school and so i was the smallest big guy in jump school i think what did i weigh like I weighed like i don't know maybe 200 pounds on the dot or something you were right? jacked so bro just because you're a little shorter than us didn't mean you weren't jacked yeah that's why i wasn't good at running <laughs> but you were you were you were pretty yoked i know that but uh i remember we had uh this one guy who was sbs he was an sbs uh operator which is uh like tier one asset for great britain right so he was he was beyond sas there were there's about usually less than 100 sbs operators at any one time these you remember were our that instructors guy? these were our instructors guys that aaron is talking about at uh, yeah. attack air operations which is navy halo school so that's that's what he's talking about yeah, yeah me I, and, I, I remember him oh yeah you guys that guy was hilarious you remember uh, your but, instructor's name mine was whitcomb and, and he'd always uh, it, it, when we were free falling he'd always go like this he'd say I need more cowbell. And I, I'd get on the ground. I'd be like, hey, what is this? And he'd say, I need more cowbell. And I'd be like, Instructor Wickham, what's more cowbell? He goes, more cowbell. <laughs> and I, more cowbell. I still haven't figured out what it is. You don't know what that is? That's Christopher Walken. No, no, no. I got it. But I don't know what it, uh, what it translates to in the oh. air, right? <laughs> gotcha. Well, the, whatever the British dude's name, I can't remember it. But he was the first guy I ever jumped out of an airplane with. And it went like this. He, uh, Well, excluding static line, I did uh, however many static line jumps, what do we have to do? Five or something round shoots or whatever. But the first, uh, first Five, MFR, yeah. uh, so is, a you know, a, a halo and we go up, we're probably what? 12,000. Yeah, we, we, we got up to 12, nine AGL generally. Yeah, something there. like that. So, yeah. so he looked at me and, uh, 
I was standing next to you, and I remember the first the first thing this guy said. He had a British accent, so it threw me off. Uh, he said, "Oh, you're one of the bigger lads, eh?" And then he looked over at Sweet, and he said, "Who the size that bloke?" <laughs> so every single time that guy would go up in the plane with me, I'd be like, "You're a bigger lad, eh?" You remember so when I used to do the major pain? You remember the major pain impressions before we oh, jumped? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I never forget, man. I didn't pull my parachute on my first jump. I don't know what happened, but you had the, the they gave you the sign for practice touches, and then pool w- was this where they where they put their index finger out like that, right? And practice touches is where they do an actual yeah, practice you just touch. Jump three. For whatever reason, I don't know if I was tripping or what was going on, but for some reason, I thought that they were giving me a practice touch and they were telling me to pull. And we were supposed to pull at 5,000 feet AGL, yeah. right? It, 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 when you get to the teams, it's 3,500. What, what was it, uh, opening altitude at your, your SEAL team, Aaron? Oh, I mean, it, uh, it all depended on whatever. what we were doing. <laughs> whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was I'd, five... I'd, I've pulled pretty low on a couple of them, you know, especially some <laughs> water jumps. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was a 5,000 feet deployment. And I thought that he was telling me to, to do more practice touches. So I'm sitting here doing practice touches <laughs> through 5,000 feet. And all of a sudden, my parachute just rips open. This is the first time I ever jumped. I'm like, oh, I got a parachute. And what I didn't realize is that one of the instructors had pulled it for me. And my instructor's yeah, name is Instructor Grab that. Yeah, Instructor Whitcomb. So I get to the ground. And I got a pretty bad British accent. But he was like, hey, uh, Rolson number uh, 22. Uh, you're going to get back up on the aircraft, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to put your parachute back on, and you're going to pull your parachute this time at the designated altitude. You're going to pass it, and you're going to get on to jump number two. And I was like, all right, brother, sounds good. So I get back on there and take care of business. But I'll never forget, man, I'm the guy that failed jump one. So not too yeah. proud of that. My, my first jump, uh, I was in the doorway, and it was supposed to be like you set, you go one, wait, two, and then three, and you're going out, and you present into the wind. Well, I get into the doorway and I look at the instructor for the okay to start. And he looks at me and he goes, and I lean in and he just takes his arm and there's the big dude. He just takes his arm and just pushes me out of the plane. So I'm like this ball of wadded up shit falling down (laughs) through the sky. And he's chasing down after me and he gets up next to me and he goes like that. So I do it and then I'm flying and uh, we get to the ground and I said, hey, man, I was going to jump. Why'd you push me out? And he said, I think it's funny. (laughs) <laughs> those guys had way too much fun hey aaron i got a little something something right here man i saved this shirt after all the years i got our tack air shirt right here and on the back it actually says i don't know if you guys can actually see this but uh it says like navy <laughs> navy free fall ripcord and then down at the bottom it says uh not trained by the army priceless priceless so i thought that was pretty cool hey, yeah yeah so. you're you're, wel- you're welcome the uh, navy flipped the bill on that for you uh if you'd have gone to army jump school, you'd still be going. Hut, 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 hut. Yeah. Right. And then for, uh, for some of you guys that have watched like, uh, like free fall videos or, or halo school videos or whatever, you know, you, you're obviously used to people jumping out of the back of a C one thirty. Um, the Navy free fall school utilizes civilian aircraft. And so that's why Aaron was showing, uh, the present to the wind because you do side exits out of the side of the aircraft. So you're using these, uh, twin otters is what they're called and you jump out of the side of the aircraft and you do what's called a poised exit so you have to present your body to the wind in this arched body position so that you don't uh, we call it sky trash so that your body doesn't tumble all around like this and you will fail halo school if you can't exit without your body going straight all the way down in, in the plane as we call it so if you're tumbling all around like that on exit you'll fail halo school and there was a guy that, that failed out of halo school it happens every course yeah. 
Y'all got a little ways before Halo School. I wouldn't worry yeah. about it just yet. Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry about Halo School. So, all right, that was that was a bit long winded, but uh, some good stories there. Let's go on to the next question. Sorry. Uh, I got one. Yeah, go ahead, Sal. All right, so I just got actually Wait, two. Not so... you, man. Skip that guy. <laughs> Sorry, no, Sal. The... <laughs> Sorry, Sal. You're getting skipped. Sal, right. you from New, you're coming from New York, right? You guys are getting ravaged yep. by the COVID, huh? Yeah, I'm actually in uh, Suffolk County right now, which is like the epicenter of the entire thing, which, you know, just kind of sucks, but whatever. Did you wipe your phone down before you, uh, before you got on this call? <laughs> my, my dad's having me take the shoes off before I get in the house after a walk with the dog, because if someone spits on the street and I step in it, it might get into the house and he's afraid that, it could, that someone will get it. He's all paranoid. Right. Yeah, so well, we're going to have Sal. Always- we're going to have Sal wash his hands real quick, and then he can answer his, answer his question. <laughs> Go ahead, Sal. All right. Uh, so two quick questions. Uh, what was your favorite and uh, most hated part about being a SEAL, and did you work with DevGrew? What was your like experience with your experiences with them, and do you wish you tried out for Team 6? Uh, yeah, so I did actually try out for Team 6. Didn't make it. Um, right. But – I would say that anybody that is a, a SEAL operator is, should try out. If your goal is not to go to DevGrew, then, I mean, what are you doing with your life, man? You know, that's just my opinion. But, uh, yeah, I, I tried out, and I was going to go again and again and again until I made it, but uh, I got med retired. So I'm actually uh, – some guys said that I'm active duty right now. I, I retired uh, in June, uh, hit an IED in Iraq. Uh, in Mosul, Mosul, whatever you want to call it, and I uh, got a little brain damage from it. Anyways, so my least favorite thing about being a SEAL would probably be IEDs. <laughs> All right, next question. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, man, hey, I'll tell you, dude, like, uh, it, it really is, it's almost surreal, man, like, looking back on it, it's, uh, it's really is like a, a rock star lifestyle, and, and, I mean, you're, you're being paid and pretty good money, all things considered, to blow shit up, shoot guns, jump out of airplanes, scuba dive. Like, it's, it's pretty cool. Dude, I've been to 84 countries. Like, it's a good life. What's up? All right, ne- next question. Oh, real quick on that. Do you guys have any idea how many countries there are in the world? Anyone know the answer? 128. 128? Like 220. There's, there's a little bit. It's up there in the 200s. Uh, 204. 258, final answer. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say uh, there's a couple that are weird. They don't actually count as countries, too. Are you counting those, sweet? <laughs> oh. I, I mean, technically, there's about 195 countries. Yeah, right? I thought it was just shy of 200. And then there's two that they say self-proclaim as countries. And yeah, yeah so um, about 195 countries. And uh, something interesting, that I don't know if you guys realize this, but out of those 195 countries, the United States military is occupying 150 of those countries, okay? And we are occupying additional countries beyond that 150 um, with different types of forces, um, special mission units, et cetera. Um, so we are all over the place. So being a special operator is more important than ever. And that's why we're on this chat tonight because you guys are the ones who are gonna take the torch next. 
So let's go on to the next question. Yeah, I got a question for you. Go ahead, Etienne. So uh, in life, what can you say helped you out? Any prior life experiences when you're going through, like, it doesn't matter for what special forces group or 75th, Green Berets, SEALs, like, do you have any life experience that you can, you were able to take? If you say you were a brawler, I mean, I like to fight too. You think that helped you out a little bit? Yeah, so I played a lot of, yeah, absolutely. I played a lot of sports in high school, but uh, I was uh, captain of my wrestling team. And, dude, uh, high school wrestlers are some of the toughest kids on the planet, man. Like, that's just one of many things. Uh, grew up kind of poor white trash in uh, middle Georgia. And if I killed a deer before I went to school, I didn't have to go to school that day. So I was a pretty good shot already, and I was damn good at stalking animals, hogs and deer. So. I, uh, those, those things definitely played a factor in my military career. I was recce team leads. I was point man pretty much the entire time I was in the SEAL teams. I was doing something with recce, which is reconnaissance. So I'm, I'm the first guy in the platoon. I'm climbing buildings doing sniper overwatches. I'm planning the route in, all that kind of stuff. And, dude, I got incredible navigation skills, especially when it comes to going, walking through the woods, you know. And I definitely learned that as a child, just growing up hunting and fishing all the time and, you know, I'm not, and hey, I got a buddy that, uh, that he grew up in New York and like, I mean, I mean, New York City, New York. And with the exception of like uh, a couple of city parks, he never really saw many trees. And then that dude's about as good in the woods as I am. So, I mean, it, it's not like it's a prerequisite to, to being a good, you know, operator growing up a country boy redneck or growing up in Brooklyn and you've been in fights so many times. Dude, it all comes down to the individual person. All your life experiences are – you can find a way, you know, all your hardships, use that towards it, becoming a better man. But those little things, I think they help me. Awesome. Thank you, Aaron. Great. Next question. I got a question. Is that Christian? Go ahead, Christian. Uh, George, George, Georgia boy here. How was Cypher School? Chris, say that one more time. Say that one more time, please. I'm sorry. I, I live in North Georgia, so I thought it was pretty cool. Oh, right about on. That. Uh, how about Cypher School? Can you give us a little information on that? It's completely secret, man. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I had a great time in Sniper School, dude. Uh, we did, uh, I mean, we did everything from live tissue shoots and, and um, I mean, you know, you, you get dope on all your guns out to, so everything from a 556 five, you know, the, so we at the time we were using the. Uh, now they're using a Daniel Defense. We we're at the time using a. Uh, who was it? Daniel Defense made the rail, and so the Mark 12 was the 556, and then the next in line was the Mark 11 uh, Knight's Armament SR25, basically. Uh, then 300 Wind Mag. So, uh, dude, I love I love shooting. I love guns. I've I've probably shot close to about five million bullets in my life, but. My whole time in, in the SEAL teams, I always volunteer. I stayed extra for shooting, especially down at, like, Mid-South and Shaw's and shooting and stuff. So, dude, I, I would shoot and shoot and shoot because, well, bullets were free and it wasn't my guns that I'm wearing out, so I loved it. Um, but in sniper school, awesome. man, it, it's incredible. You learn so many different things that you – I mean, they teach you this, this thing, Kim's Games, where you work on, like, flash, like taking basically a screenshot with your – with your mind when you look at something and they teach you techniques on how you memorize things in a certain order so that if all you got was one quick look of something, you have it memorized and you can sit there and draw out a map of it and you can, 
call distances and you learn to call wind and shooting and stuff. It's, it's an incredible school. It's, it is the hardest school in NSW uh, after Buds. So Buds is the hardest. And then the next hardest school is, is sniper school. It, it has a fair attrition rate because it's not just about being able to shoot. I mean, it's, it's every aspect of being a reconnaissance. I mean, camo- the art of camouflage and being all sneaky peaky and stuff. Awesome. Uh, how about stalking? Anything really there? Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd settle down with your stalking if I were you, because, you know, if you get arrested and, and you get felony charges for <laughs> being a thief and Tom, then I don't know if they're <laughs> going to let you go, buddy. Nah, stalking, man, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an important part about it. But, you know, the days of stalking up through the woods on, like, one guy for one shot, that shit hadn't really happened a lot since Vietnam. <clears throat> it has happened a few times. But you still need to know the art of camouflage, sitting two rooms deep and not being seen and, and all that kind of stuff, especially if you're doing, like, an overwatch for a couple of days and stuff. So stalking stalking's a big, important thing. But, you know, a lot of – a lot of stuff these days, I mean, we're, we're operating so much at night on nods with thermals and you got ISR overhead and stuff like that. So it's, it's still a, a big part. There's a reason they call it scout sniper. And one of the big categories in front of it is, is stalking. Like you, you got like three main categories and that's one of them. So it's important, but you know. Thank you so much. Okay, T, next question. Uh, I got a question about kind of like like years of service because <clears throat> I've always kind of wanted to do as many years as I could either physically do basically. Um, and so I've been thinking about doing 20, uh, possibly going O or Chief Warren after, like, after a little bit. What was What's kind of like the average someone in the teams does and um, – what is your kind of like recommendation almost of like how long someone probably should be in the teams for? Dude, I, I my so I was in a little over 15 years before I got med retired, not by choice. Uh, I would have, I'd be in right now and I'd be in until 30. So they kicked me out if I could, but I love it. So it's not for everybody, man. Some, and you know, some guys are, they do 10 years and you know, they're like, Hey, you know, I, I want to settle down and, and relax a little. And some guys are, I mean, I got a buddy that's – he's at 33 years right now active duty because he took a flagstaff position, and he was at DevGrew for 20 of those years. And then went back vanilla side and started doing stuff and hit – like, they're going to make him retire soon. And he's like, dude, I don't know what I'm going to do. I guess I'm going to start contracting. Go back overseas, still doing work. He's – you know, he just loves it that much. So, it really comes down to the individual person. I will say to get 20 years out of your body, uh, be smart with it, you know. I got a, like I said, dude, this, this knee's been rebuilt twice. Uh, I got titanium pins and Kevlar holding this together. I got pins in my wrist. I got a, I mean, it just list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. Okay. Next question. I have yeah, a I got a question. question. You go. Uh, you okay, could go. Um, let's go. Let's go. Um, Andrew, go ahead and go first. And who had the second question? Weaver. Okay, we'll go with Andrew first, and then Caitlin, you got next. All right, I have a question about Halo. Uh, were you ever afraid of to like jump out of a plane at such a high altitude? Altitude, and uh, if not, like, do you have any advice for someone who's afraid of heights but wants to do uh, like soft jobs? Yeah. So 
funny thing about jumping out of planes, and I think you'll learn that, it doesn't matter if you're scared of heights or anything, because it doesn't look like you're, it's surreal, man. It doesn't, it's not like you're looking over the edge of a cliff or looking over the edge of a building or something, and you can see the ground. Like, you can see the ground, but you don't really see it. It's, it's not like, it just feels like you're, fall, you're not falling. It feels like you're windy. Like, it's really windy and you're stable falling. So, it, it's not like you jump and your arms are flinging like, you, you know, you jumped off a diving board or something. So, it's a completely different feeling. But, uh, no, I'm not really afraid of heights and uh, I'm not really afraid of dying or anything like that. Uh, so, what I, I used to play a game of, and I, I'm not, I'm just telling you this to, you know, I'm, I'm not recommending this to you, but I, uh, I hate packing parachutes. So, I would either pay somebody to pack my parachute for me, uh, or I would just walk into the <laughs> airloft and find somebody's uh, parachute that they didn't use from the time we jumped before that was already packed and uh, just jump that. So, you know, it's always fun and it's a surprise. Like you look up, hey, is it going to open? Who knows? I got a reserve. We'll see how that works, you know? Hey, to touch on that, guys, uh, as far as like being scared of heights, like I don't know a human being on this earth that doesn't go up to the top of a tall building 20 stories high and puts their head over the edge and doesn't think, man, it would be absolutely terrifying if I fell over the edge of this and didn't get some oh, yeah, that, in I mean, their stomach, that, right? Like That's not what I mean when like – I'm just yeah. saying – Heights don't really bother me. If I'm if I'm holding on, then I know I'm going to be okay. If you're throwing me off the side of a building, I'm going to be like fighting you to the nail, obviously. <laughs> exactly. And so anyone, it's a natural human reaction to look over the edge of a building and be like, man, I feel uncomfortable. So don't think that you have scared of, don't think that you're scared of heights just because you feel uncomfortable whenever you're at a tall place and you don't feel secure. Um, what Aaron is talking about and what I felt in particular that had nothing to do with being scared of heights is that you trust your training a, and you trust your equipment B. So again, you trust your training and you trust your equipment. So before you jump out of that airplane, you already know that you're trained on how to steer that parachute, how to open it, unless you're like me and somebody has to open it for you. But to caveat on that, you actually have what's called a Cypress, a Cypress computer that's hooked up to your parachute and the Cypress is an electronic altimeter that will cut your main parachute and pre and will open your reserve parachute automatically for a pre-designated altitude. So let's say that you're burning in through 2,500 feet at 150 miles an hour. Your Cypress computer can read that and it knows to deploy your reserve parachute. So don't think just because you don't pull your parachute that you're going to die. You have a computer backup for that. But again, Trusting your equipment and trusting your training means that whenever you're looking outside of that aircraft and you see the ground below you, it's not the same. You know that you're going to jump out of that aircraft and you're going to pull your parachute and you're going to steer it in safety because you're trained on it and you trust your equipment. So I had an absolute blast free falling. I thought it was oh, yeah. the, the highlight of my career. Uh, halo jumping is absolutely hands down my favorite thing to do. Uh, and what's my favorite thing to do as an operator? I love skydiving to this day. So I don't think it necessarily has the, th the same thing to do with being scared of heights. Now, as a PJ, you do a lot of mountaineering work and you do a lot of confined space rescue work. Now, that's a little bit different whenever you're hanging on the edge of a cliff 
or you're hanging out in an elevator shaft and you're looking down 50 feet below you or 60 feet below you and it's dark and you know you're just sitting there on a, on a line right and you've got uh, your harness and you've got some belaying equipment and you're just hanging out there in that situation maybe you could get a little freaked out but again you have to trust your training trust your equipment even though you're hanging out on the side of a cliff or you're hanging out in the elevator shaft still are very aware of all the equipment that you have on how to work it and you have faith in it so i feel that being scared of heights gets alleviated with your training and your gear yeah and it's not the same when you look out at an aircraft or you jump and you're 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 in free fall it it's not the same as as jumping into water from you know a couple stories up or anything like that so much this is how i i can i think i can explain we jump with dogs, right? And the dog, when you go up to the edge of the, the, the door of the aircraft to jump out or you're jumping out of a, a ramp off the back or whatever, the dog doesn't freak out when he's under free fall. The only time the dog acts a little uneasy or whatever is right before you land because the dog's looking down and he doesn't even recognize that that's earth coming at him really fast. He just is like, well, it's really windy right now, but they got the little dog goggles on and stuff. And then they'll get a little squirmy right before you land them because, Oh wow. I see the ground 10 feet below and this is weird, you know? So if the dog's not registering that he's falling, the only reason you are is because, well, you're smarter than the dog and you know, that's what's actually happening, but it doesn't feel like that. Yeah. Amen to that. And the confidence that gets instilled in you as you go through the pipeline is incredible. So keep in mind, the mindset you have now and the confidence you have now is not going to be the same. The idea of buds, obviously I didn't go through buds. I went through pararescue indoctrination, but the idea of a course like buds or indoc is to give you that confidence and make you feel as if you were Superman so that you're comfortable to attack a situation like that. Uh, Caitlin, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I talked to my uncle recently. He um, works with drones and he works with special operations and he said that he worked with the SEAL. So I asked him some questions about um, females going in and either enlisting or going in through the officer route. And he said if you enlist, then you have to spend a few years in the fleet. And if you go through the officer route, you still have to spend a few years doing some experience or whatever. <laughs> what is that true or? And that's got a pretty streamlined pipeline now. So what I mean is you can, um, you can join the Navy now. Uh, I don't know if they're, I don't think they're letting um, females in at all, not to buds or something. I, I don't know, actually. I mean, hell, maybe. I, I heard I, that I too, just graduated. Really? Apparently. Hmm. I'd have to look into that. I don't know. Um, I looked it up, didn't find anything. Keep going. Yeah. So you as, as enlisted, you'll join, you'll go MEPS, and then you'll go through boot camp. And then from boot camp, they got like this BUDS prep thing, which is a around two-month course in, in, uh, in Great Lakes. And then they send you out to BUDS. So it's a lot more streamlined. Before, like when I joined, there, there was no like real contract to go straight to BUDS. Like you had to pick an A school or go undesignated or something. You basically had to check in with your new command that you had no say in the matter to actually get permission to go to a school like buds but now it's streamlined you know they're they're trying to hand pick people and send them as, as fast as they can you know and as far as officer program uh that's extremely competitive and you still earn your place there if you're if you're the most qualified candidate they're they're sending you you know if you want to go 
uh, I know it's like through the Naval Academy, I want to say they send like a few a year. Like I'm talking like two or three a year is all that comes out of the Naval Academy that goes there because it's so, so uh, competitive. And I mean, you're talking like collegiate level athletes that are, you know, very intelligent. They got it. They got everything going for them. And it's still, it's pretty tough. All right. But, thank you. No, for that. So I think, I think the, the, it's, it's a little more streamlined and I, I don't know what your, uh, your uncle does, but I, I did a lot of anti-drug stuff. I did a, a Southcom pump. And so I was in Colombia and Peru and Paraguay doing a bunch of stuff for, for a long time. So, I mean, uh, it's, it's cool stuff, man. Just saying it's good time. I, I don't know that. I don't think I hadn't heard that, uh, that any females had even gotten contract to go to buds yet. I heard about it recently, like within like two months ago. Interesting. Okay. I got a question. As far as the Navy SEAL officer standards, um, the last uh, scores that I was given by recruiter was optimum scores for 500 meter swim, excuse me, 500 yard swim was 825, push ups 98, uh, push ups 91, pull ups 21, and a 1.5 mile run of 859. So just looking at those numbers, um, the push-ups seem um, by far the most challenging numbers to reach on that because developers these days are much more strict. Antonio, would you mind muting your mic? Um, developers these days are much more strict on your form than they used to be. So when I was going through, you could just crush push-ups. And you know, obviously you had to lock out, you had to break the plane, but they were a little bit more lenient on how your form was. But now they're very strict. So in my opinion, the 98 push-ups is probably the most challenging there. So that's what you're looking at for your Navy SEAL officer standards. Um, next question. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, I have a question. Oh, you can go first, dude. Go ahead, Jackson. Um, so from the time that you graduated BUDS to your first deployment, what was like that timeline? Um, it was pretty quick, and then I did three deployments back to back to back with like very little break. One of the times I was back for like three months between two six-month deployments. But normally, we just had a really ramped up schedule because there was a lot going on. Normally, you do a workup that takes uh, between a year and a half, almost two years, and then you do one usually six-month or sometime a little bit longer deployment. Um, and then you're back and you, you get into a new platoon. Usually the platoon doesn't change that much. You get a couple new guys, a couple guys retire, or go to a different program or something, and then you do it all over again. So you're, we'll call it almost a two-year cycle if you did a year-and-a-half workup in a six-month deployment, give or take. But, I mean, everything changes. Like, dude, I, you know, I've, I've done little four-month things, and I've done eight months out, and I've done, like I said, I did three back-to-back-to-back one time. Um, and then I, then I went to a training command where I was uh, doing land warfare and teaching uh, standoff weapons like Carl Gustav, you know, recoilless rifle. And I was teaching sniper sustainment, a lot of helo shoots on live tissue and stuff. And then I augmented SEAL Team 7 to Iraq. So it's, I was at a training command and still went to Iraq and saw a lot of combat. So it's, I mean, it's never set in stone. You don't know where you're going until you're there. And the only reason you know you're there is because there you are. Don't mind me. Okay, next question. Let's take let's take three more questions, guys. We're already at an hour and a half. I think Aaron's having a good Aaron, how are you doing on time? You seem like you're having a good time. Oh yeah, man, I'm fine. Okay. If I wasn't take... talking to y'all, I'd probably be talking to myself. <laughs> All right, let's take three more questions. 
Jason. Yeah, I got a question, Jason. Okay, you guys go ahead, figure it out between the two of you, and uh, we'll rock and roll one and two. You can go first. Can you guys hear me? Yes, sir. All right. All right. Hey, Aaron, all right. So I got, I got two questions. First question is, uh, who's the greatest sniper of all time? I am. Next question. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, man. All right. And then the second question is, did Lee Harvey Oswald take both shots? I mean, so you do this interesting stuff in sniper school. And, uh, I mean, even if I knew the answer to that, I don't know if I could actually tell you, but I don't know the answer to that. Um, I promised Aaron cases. we weren't going to have questions like that. You're killing me. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Um, I mean, the greatest sniper that I know, I, I maybe have a biased opinion, but probably one of my buddies that I'm not going to talk about. So, I mean, you, you, you get these stories and things, which I, I'm not big on, like, all this shit in the news, and you see all these different team guys writing fucking books and stuff. I'm not big on that. So, Chris Kyle, for instance, gets brought up all the time. I knew Chris. He's a, he's a good dude and stuff. But uh, I, I just – I mean, sure, the book and everything came out after his death. And, you know, he's a great guy. But uh, I don't know if I'd have wrote all that stuff down, you know. Hey, guys, you know, I want to touch on that real quick because I got – there was a question earlier about – you know, SEALs writing books and, and SEALs having a, a bad name in the special operations. Very, community. very frowned upon in our community, by the way, Be, because to the point where things, guys get disowned and kicked out of it, dev grew and things like that. For and that's what I wanted to say is that the SEALs that you guys in this program know of right now are the SEALs that are on Instagram, the SEALs that are putting their names out there publicly, the SEALs that are trying to get recognition. What you don't know about is the 3,000 plus other SEALs that have never put their name out there. So don't let a few bad apples spoil the entire career field for you. It is very frowned upon in special operations to put your name out there. It's very frowned yeah. upon in special I operations to divulge. I don't, have a, I don't have a Facebook page. I don't have an Instagram. I don't have a Snapchat. I don't have anything. What I do have is a lot of money on my head and people that are uh, – that's the reason, like, he asked uh, – Sweet asked me if he can uh, record this and play it again sometime. Uh, you know, I get a little uneasy because the last thing I want is to get a phone call because, you know, I can't be there protecting my mother. And then if some asshole's got a van, you know, maybe he gets $100,000 wired to him because he lives in Georgia and some uh, sheik that I killed his son and he found out about it puts a price on my head. Like, there's, I mean, it's it's really, really is meant to be more of a, a like, silent professional is a real thing, you know, like you – I don't seek recognition. The only reason I'm even talking to y'all is not to brag or anything. I'm not doing it anymore, and y'all are what's going to take my place. Somebody has to do it. I can't do it anymore. Somebody needs to step up and do it. Well, I'll tell you guys, the reason why Aaron's talking to you right now is because I reached out to him and I asked him to do it. This isn't Aaron's style. He is a true, quiet professional, and he's volunteered his time tonight because he cares about you guys, and he cares about the SEAL community and the caliber of women and men that are trying out for this career field. So, again, I probably Aaron, care about that more than just about anything else. Amen. All right, guys, let's take two more questions. Yeah. Hey. Harris, go ahead. Um, where did your missions and the teams range from? And did you ever work with uh, local forces? And what was that experience like? We almost always worked with partner forces. So high, high level stuff, even would have whatever country we're in operating, at least they're no knowing we're there like that, that stuff you see on all like the black ops and things, even the like, even the bin Laden mission had 
higher ups in certain places that knew that we were going to do that. You know, so, and we work with partner forces all the time and most of them are, you know, like a lot of them are actually really good dudes, man. Uh, I worked with a couple of guys in Iraq that, I mean, they, they believed in what they were doing. They were there, no joke, trying to eradicate this poison of this radical Islam in their country that are raping and killing and murdering innocent people and stuff. They don't want that in their country. They might be a different religion than me. They might, uh, you know, have nothing else about us besides the fact that we're both willing to go out there on the, on the front lines and, and eradicate this evil. We have nothing else in common but that. But sometimes that's all you need. So, I mean, dude, I've, I've worked with guys in pretty much every country I've been in. I haven't been in firefights in every country, you know, obviously. But uh, I've, been in, I've been in a lot of firefights with a lot of dudes that, you know, I couldn't even pronounce their name. But those guys are willing to, to put their life on the line for the same cause that I, I absolutely am volunteering in that I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believe in as well. All right. Thank you. You're gonna you're gonna get irritated though some with some of those guys because a lot of those guys they do everything about as ass backwards as what you think would be normal but I mean kind of got to roll the punches on that a lot of times the good mission gets shut down because you don't have the numbers because partner force won't give you enough numbers for blocking positions the right way or maybe dude I've 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 ran ops and stuff before where uh, there was me and one other American running fifty dudes and. You know, it's it's like herding cats with those guys sometimes. Harris, how long have you been growing that Fu Manchu? Uh, what man, is that uh, thing? Is that like a Corona if challenge? You, if or you something? say what if you that? say any longer than three days, you're wrong. <laughs> uh, I've been growing it for about a month now. I uh, just cut it to to be like this for uh, Joe Exotic. So hell yeah! Now now that's a good answer. Then I like that. Yeah. Thanks. Looks good, Harris. Okay, next question. Hey, um, so kind of similar to partner forces, um, out of like the other units that you worked with, what was your favorite to work with? I mean, we, we got jokes and stuff, and there's always uh, this uh, happy, feel-good kind of give-each-other-a-hard-time kind of thing going on, you know? So, uh, but I would say – I'd say, and you know, not not because – Sorry, there's a uh, there's a SH-60 Bravo flying over me right now. One second. Probably a bunch of Navy SEALs with uh, with uh, Hawaiian shirts on and machine gun <laughs> stuck out of the side. Nah, uh, yeah, I can hear Legs a little better. Legs hanging now. out. Uh, I would say I would in. say my I would say my favorite guys I've ever worked with uh, would probably be. Uh, other seals waka waka no man I've, I've met a lot of good dudes from oda you know army sf uh damn neck always has random dudes from everywhere in there but i'd say probably the most valuable guy to put in a, a seal platoon and have on the battlefield what's up buddy uh have on the battlefield is uh probably a pj man and i'm not saying that because uh because sweet's here running this thing I, I truly mean that those are those are some of the most well-rounded guys they're basically a an incredible combat medic that can jump, dive, they can do anything. All of them are the best damn JTACs I've ever seen. Man, I get flustered on comms trying to talk to aircraft and trying to talk to, you know, 10 different dudes that are talking to other guys. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, it takes a, 
it takes a special kind of man to be able to to run a position like that. And and I would say that uh, we 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 call PJs in particular force multipliers. Um, the greatest force multiplier by far is a sniper, but I'd say the next best is is having a PJ get thrown in your platoon. That or a dog handler. I I love working with dogs too. Thanks. And uh, just uh, can I ask go one follow up? Yeah, go awesome, ahead, George. Um, out of all the schools, like besides sniper school, what was your favorite to go to? Uh, well, I, I went to this, uh, this one thing, this one class, Load Sling Planner, which uh, was, was the dumbest course I've ever been to. It was run by Big Army, so I was the only SEAL in there, and I was the only guy involved in SOCOM. And the reason was because if we took my platoon to this certain area, we needed to be able to have C-130 uh, be able to drop and stuff and plan out loads and things like that. So the reason I like that school so much is because um, the first three days, it was, it was about a month and a half long. The first three days, these, uh, these army guys were, they were all about talking about themselves. Like they each went, like you had to, normally a class is you introduce yourself. Hey, what's up? Uh, this is me. I'm here. And that's it. These guys are running through their entire career, everything they've ever done. So when I got my turn to introduce myself, I stood up and I was like, hi, my name's Aaron. And I sat back down. They were like, whoa, 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 tell us more, tell us more. And so I'm like, uh, I'm a Navy SEAL and I got to go to this class so that we, so that, uh, that can be mission essential. Well, they didn't like that. So the next day they wanted me to come in and say, uh, they were like, well, none of us have really got to work with a SEAL before. So, you know, tell us more about your, your day-to-day -day life and what you do in the SEAL teams and stuff like that. So I, I said, uh, anything you've ever seen or heard about the SEAL teams is probably true. Or maybe it's not true. I don't know what you've heard. And then I sat back down. Because why does that matter? So the reason that was my favorite school, though, is because the, the, the instructor that was running it said, some of y'all are acting like y'all don't need to be here and stuff. And I absolutely needed to be there to get that check in the box for that qual to be able to drop stuff out of the back of the C-130 for resupply. So he said, if you think that you can, uh, you can pass this course right now on taking this test and you make a hundred on it, then you don't have to come back to this class and I'll give you your cert. And it was six weeks long, right? So I said, okay, I can do that. And I called back to my command. I said, I got to make a call. I called back to my command and I said, hey, they said I can take the test and I don't have to, uh, to do anymore. I can just get the cert and come back. And they were like, well, you're going to make 100 on it? I'm like, yeah. So I took the test, made 100 on it, and got my cert. And I didn't have to go to that class anymore. So then I got the next five and a half weeks off of work. That's awesome. That was my favorite class I went to. That's sick, man. Thanks for asking or answering uh, you're breaking up. I didn't, I didn't hear that last thing. Oh, thank you for answering all the questions tonight. Really appreciate it. Oh yeah, man. Okay. We got one more. We got time for one more question. It's getting dark where Aaron's at. So one more question. I can turn a light on. <laughs> well, all right, Aaron, if you want to stay on, we'll keep rolling then. Yeah, I'll, I'll turn a light on. What's up? All right. Hey, how you doing? Rolling. Go ahead. Um, a lot of you guys already touched upon some of the questions that I had, but I was just wondering. Yeah, go ahead, Will. Where, um, can you guys hear me? Yeah, you're good. Oh, okay. um, I was wondering if you uh, knew uh, Kevin Houston. If I what? Uh, did you know Kevin Houston? He was a SEAL. I'm from uh, Barstool, and he was from Barstool, too. Oh, no, I, I, don't, I don't think I know uh, him. Uh, yeah. But you got to also keep in mind, uh, 
um, I spent two months at Walter Reed after the last time I got blown up and I uh, got a little bit of brain damage. So I know, uh, I know face is pretty good too and stuff, but, uh, where, you know, what uh, team he was at or anything like that? Um, he was on the East coast team and then he, uh, he went to Devru and he was there till 2011, I think. Uh, did he, did he die, uh, August 6th? Yeah. Uh, dude, I know, I know a bunch of those guys. So I'm, yeah. I mean, I might've met him, but yeah. Um, Thank you. I got a. I actually have one of those those guys' helmets right here. From that. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I always wore that helmet after he gave it to me, and uh, you know. Anyways. Aaron, sure, would sure. you mind? Would you mind talking a little bit about that helmet you have there, if you wouldn't mind? I know it's personal to you, but but I know you brought it with you tonight on purpose, so. You my oh, I, I don't go anywhere without this fucking helmet. So there's that. This helmet saved my life more than one time. But uh, yeah, it was a it was a gift from a from a a guy that uh, was I think the world of, and uh, he made a he made the ultimate sacrifice on that op. Uh, um, yeah, so I mean, it's a opscore ballistic helmet. Um, pretty run of the mill these days. Everybody's uh, getting them now, but. Um, yeah, I wore that. Uh, I wore that helmet. I've worn that helmet on five different deployments. Served me right, you know. That's all I got to say about that. Understood, understood brother. Understood. Next question, please. Yeah, I got one. I, I have a question. Yeah, who was first? Here you go. You're good. Mm-hmm. I can go next. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Okay. okay, we'll go with Michael second. All right. Who's first? Got it. Thank you. Uh, Baja. Ask a question, Baja. Can you guys hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Go ahead. All right. Um. So yeah, I I was wondering like, what was going through? Is it breaking up? No, no, I can hear you. Hello. I can hear you fine and dandy. Ask your question, man. Okay, next question. Okay, I'll get it. Uh, so what are like some tips and advice you can give for, you know, really paying attention to detail? Because I feel like that's like something that, I don't know, maybe I like not take for granted, but I'm not very good at. And I think that's something super important. I think that we all need to learn and get better at. Um, so you're talking about just ways to, uh, I came inside. It was pretty dark, uh, ways to, to get better at attention to detail. Yeah. Like, like being able to like turn up the focus when like things get like, when like the adrenaline spikes and like things get crazy, how do you like calm yourself down and like start, you know, I guess not like being in the moment, like making sure you're not missing anything and like you're going through everything. Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that you do to help with that checklist is one of them. And I mean, so like before you got the door, your buddy checks your gear over, you check his gear over things like that. So, you know, I mean, last thing you want to do is, uh, you know, forget something stupid and then boom, it costs you your life or your buddy's life or something. But, um, they, they, uh, they ingrain it in you from the day you join the military, just like 
you, you'll do all these little monotonous tasks and stuff that at the time you're probably like, what a waste of time. This is stupid or whatever. But if you look at it, like the whole reason that in the military, they, you know, in boot camp, for instance, they make you fold your bed and have measurements, you know, the pillowcases ta taunt and the, you know, the flap for your sheet is measured six inches on the dot and things like that. It's just to teach you a, to, to basically develop, whether it's a mental checklist or some guys write everything down and stuff like that. And you, you get it so ingrained in you that you basically you live your life like that. So you get in the car, you know, you know how to, to operate your vehicle, I'm sure, right? The first time you got in a vehicle, you probably didn't know how to do that. But you taught yourself over and over. All right, first thing I got to do, put the key in the ignition. You know, that's a diesel. It's got to glow plugs, whatever. You know, you got this whole checklist. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer in this, especially when it comes to operating. No one... Um, no one ever rises to the occasion. You simply fall to your, your highest level of training. So, and it's not just your job to do this. It's the guy next to you's job also. And if everybody's doing it, then hopefully somebody catches something that's wrong, you know? But uh, yeah, I mean, so everybody's got different techniques and stuff and you kind of got to figure it out on your own. Like I got a buddy that used to carry a pen and pad everywhere and he would, Dude, he would just write down the color of the wall if he needed to. Didn't matter. And, dude, he was spot on. Like, he, he had his shit wired tight, too. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Next question. If yeah, no one else has one, I'll go. Oh, go ahead. I've already asked no, you're one. Good. You're good, bro. You're good. No, you're let's good. Go, ahead, Aaron. Go, go ahead, Evan. Um, so, going back to the kind of like the – I heard you mention the uh, dog handlers. That's something that I've recently really been interested about doing. Um, do you know anything about that process, kind of that part of the pipeline? Yeah, so there's a couple of different programs they have. Uh, DevRu's probably got the best. So basically what they 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 got a program where you get to your first team and they, they take two or three guys from each team that want to do it and – uh, they'll send you through their, their pipeline and then you'll deploy with them. And then you come back and you can, uh, you, I mean, there's, there's one program that, uh, one of my buddies did, uh, his name's Andy. He, uh, he got sent over, did the dog program, came back, did, uh, he was one of two dog handlers in our troop. And, uh, so we split it. We're two platoons. So one dog stayed with one platoon, one went with the other. And those guys get picked to do work above just about anyone else, just because the dog. I mean, that's such a great tool, A, for sniffing out IEDs and route in and stuff like that. We would run a uh, – this last uh, pump that I did in Iraq, we would – the uh, dog would run with recce everywhere. Like, and you're just – so, I mean, you got a guy that's not – would not normally be on recce, but now he's carrying a sniper rifle also and doing good work just because he got involved in that. It's really more like you got to – A, I guess you got to be an animal lover. Um, I never did a dog program. I mean, I've, I've worked with dogs a lot, but, uh, yeah, I was never a dog handler, but I mean, you're still a seal and just your primary weapon changes over from being a rifle to a, uh, your, you know, for me, for instance, changes from being a, a sniper rifle to being a, a fucking canine. And that, that, I mean, it's a very, very valuable tool. I'd recommend it. Uh, I've, I've had a couple of friends that are like, dude, that's like the greatest job that I've ever done in the teams. But uh, there's a couple of different programs out there that do it. But, I mean, it's, it's definitely options at every team. And you're, you're a very, very valuable asset once you're a dog handler. Thank you. 
All right, team. That's our last question for the night. Um, Aaron, thanks so much for coming on to us uh, with us tonight, man. I mean, a true quiet professional. It's great to see you, dude. All the memories together at Halo School. Obviously, one of the best times of my life, man. So, yeah, thanks all these I got years a, I got later a good for question stepping for you. up and coming out. Yeah, go ahead, good dude. What's up? You. you got that shirt, and you said that you've you've had that shirt since uh, you know, since we went through jump school. But, 2010. Yeah, but the weird thing is, I was I was looking through my drawer, and I don't have that shirt anymore. And I've been missing it since you were at my house last time you were in town. That's weird. Well, here, here, here's the thing: you were XL, and I were a, a large. So, oh, I don't, I don't think that's the case, man. You're a big dude. <laughs> this is this is a large right here, brother. I did not steal your shirt. I promise. Yeah, I believe. But you. I'm just kidding. This this is the. Uh, and for the, you guys that didn't see it, this is the Navy Freefall shirt that Aaron and I got whenever we graduated the course. And uh, it says, not being trained by the Army, uh, priceless. So no offense to you Army boys out there, but uh, I stand by that. I'm glad I didn't have to go through uh, Army Freefall. Na uh, Navy Freefall was probably one of the best times of my life out there. Oh, so, yeah, dude. It's a blast, What man. a blast, dude. So anyways, Aaron, thanks for coming on, dude. You're the man. Um, I can speak for the group in that. Uh, you're a character. You had an awesome uh, persona tonight, uh, answered a ton of questions, dude, and uh, made this group stronger. So thank you for everything that you did for us tonight, man. And I'll look forward to being in touch with you in the future. And hopefully you'll continue to be a part of the program, brother. Yeah, yeah. No problem. Uh, hey, uh, I'd, I'd say good luck to everybody. But, you know, I think it really comes down more to uh, to the human that's doing it. So um, best wishes to you all. Uh, you know, I hope to see uh, – I'm sure I'll see some of you all eventually – maybe at a, uh, at a reunion or something like that, but, uh, take it easy. All right, team. Thanks for joining us tonight. Why don't you guys go ahead and say your final farewells to Aaron. You can go ahead and come off mute and, uh, say goodbye. And, uh, we'll go ahead and Thank you for coming on. Aaron. Thank, Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for your nice service. Sir. Thanks, man. Stay safe out service, there. Aaron. God Thank bless you, Aaron. Thank you for your service. Thank you very much. Take it easy, yo. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron.